I mean, let us go before the Lord in prayer, please. Father, we come to you this morning as our blessed God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your goodness this morning toward us. We thank you, Lord, for your greatness as the only true God, the only great God, the only creator of heaven and earth and everything in it. Lord, we thank you that although you are the sovereign God who looks over your creation, that there's a great gulf that is fixed between you and man. But Lord, you have bridged that gulf through your son, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Christ is our advocate. He pleads our righteousness before you. He defends us against the accusations of our enemy, Satan. Lord, it is through Christ that we are reconciled to you. We have reconciliation through Christ. We have been made into a right relationship with you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we adore you this morning because of the work of Christ and how Christ came and died in our place as our substitute making a way for a man to be in a right relationship with you we thank you Lord this morning as we pray that we worship one king and that is the Lord Jesus and that our Lord reigns he is ruling right now seated at your right hand we thank you, Lord, that we have a king who is unlike the earthly kings that uh, we see every day. Christ is king of kings, and he is Lord of lords. And, Lord, we just want to just take time to praise you and thank you for your kingship. You are king. You rule. You are the sovereign God. You are the sovereign creator. In the beginning, God. Lord, you've always existed. There was never a time when you were not. You are the great uncreated one. Who can't be fashioned with human hands. Who can't be imagined with all the smartest and brightest people in this world, Lord. You can't eat, your being cannot be imagined. And Lord, though we can't see you, we know that your invisible hand works in our lives. We see your invisible hand in all of creation. In all that is formed, things that are seen and things that are not seen. And Lord, when I consider your great majesty, I, I look at myself and I look at man. And as the psalmist cried out, what is man that you are mindful of him? Lord, it is such a blessing and a privilege that you are even mindful of us because, Lord, we don't deserve it. It is only by your mercy 
It is only through your grace that you even consider us, Lord. Because we are weak. Because we're like grass. Scripture tells us that all flesh is as grass and withers like the herb. But although we're weak, you still look on us. You still care for us. You still tend to us. And Father, we thank you for this great reality. May that humble us under your mighty hand. And Lord, I pray also this morning that you give us a new sense of being pardoned for our sins. Lord, continue to pardon us. Let us feel as if we come every day to that precious fountain that is filled with blood that is drawn from Emmanuel's veins as the great hymn writer wrote. Lord, continue to wash us every day new. And Lord, we ask you to have pity on those who have not been pardoned, whose sins have not been forgiven because they don't have faith in you. Hear the cry, Lord, of sinners as they seek your face. As they call out for your salvation, Father. That you may lift the burden of their sins from them. And Lord, we ask you to give us again the strength to fight against sin. Lord, we ask you to conquer the power of sin in all of us. Grant us power to live above sin. Lord, let not the passions of the flesh or the desires, the sinful desires of our mind bring our spirits into subjection. But Lord, may the spirit who resides in all of us as believers rule over mind and body and may Christ rule over our spirit so that we may be able to as Paul says, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Lord, I pray this morning for our nation that you may look upon the United States. Our nation, Lord, is in sin. Our leaders are sinners. They're evil people. They propose things that are totally in contrary to your scripture, to your word. Lord, they have turned away from the path of peace to seek the ways of self-glory. Lord, I pray that you turn our nation back on its course again. Grant repentance to our leaders from President Joseph Biden and Kamala Harris to his whole cabinet, to all the congressmen, the House of Representatives and the senators, all the cabinet heads, Lord, that you may grant all of them repentance. Lord, may they all lie penitent at the feet of your throne. Bring them to their knees in repentance. And Lord, may the church, as her witness, call them to repentance also. Lord, that the church may prevail with the gospel witness in our nation. 
Lord, I pray that the church of God may have influence, at least a little influence over the worldliness of this nation and this world. Lord, may we become salt more completely and provide savor for all the masses of people in this nation. And Lord, may we cleanse out the leaven of sin in the church. And when we do that, Father, we can call the nation to repentance. Lord, I pray for our brothers and our sister churches, our affiliate churches, our like-minded men. Help us as fathers to shepherd our children's hearts. Help us as husbands to shepherd our wives' hearts. Help us as pastors to shepherd our churches. And help us as men, Father, where we all fall short to be the godly men that you've called us to be. Father, forgive us all for times where we have not done that. Lord, just look uh, gracefully, rather, and mercifully upon myself and Bob and Carlton and and Phil and Anthony and Cody and Josh and Brother Curly and Justin, all the other faithful brethren, Father. Look upon us and have mercy on us. Help us by your spirit to lead your church, to lead our homes, to lead our families, but to lead as men to your glory. And Father, now I ask, as the word is about to be preached, may your word bring life to our spirits. May your word encourage the saints as we look at your kingdom, the kingdom of God, your kingdom rule, as we see it here in Esther, the eighth chapter. Lord, refresh us by your spirit. Encourage us by your word. I pray, Lord, and ask that you send the Holy Spirit to apply your truth to our hearts, illuminate your truth, apply it to our hearts. And Father, fill me with your spirit to preach this text well, to apply it to my own heart. Yet I stand under the authority of your word and give your word as just do. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Let us turn to Esther, the eighth chapter. We have this week and one more week in our book, in this sermon series in the book of Esther. And this morning we're going to look at the kingdom of God. The realities of God's kingdom. The the realities of God's rule. As we see it in the context of this chapter. We read last week where uh, Haman was hanged finally because of the, the plot that he Uh, had against the Jews had been uh, outed and the king when he heard of it he had Haman hanged and so that was a great victory but in this part of the story the edict still remains there's still that to be dealt with 
one thing has been done now something else needs to be done because remember with edicts they could not be overturned so God is called on to do the uh, seemingly impossible and we know that God does the impossible and we will see how he does that this morning in this text so chapter 8 beginning at verse 1 it says on that day King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman the enemy of the Jews and Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told how he was related to her so the king took off his signet ring which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman now Esther spoke again to the king fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews and the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther so Esther arose and stood before the king and said if it pleases the king and if I have found favor in his sight and the thing seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces well how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew indeed I have given Esther the house of Haman and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews you yourself write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in it the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring no one can revoke so the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month which is the month of Savan, on the 23rd day and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews the satraps the governors and the princes of the provinces from Ethiopia to India 127 provinces in all to every province in its own script to every people in their own language and to the Jews in their own script and language and he wrote it in the name of King Ahasuerus sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent leaders by curry on horseback riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds by these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives to destroy kill and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them both little children and women and to plunder their possessions and one day in all the provinces King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month which is the month of Adar a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies no couriers who rode on royal horses went out hastened and pressed on the king's command and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel so Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple and the city of Susa rejoiced and was glad then the Jews had light and gladness and honor I'm sorry joy and honor 
and in every province and city, wherever the king's commanded decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Amen. That is such a great story that God wrote. Would y'all agree? Amen. What is the kingdom of God? I have a book here that Bob gave me some years ago by George Land Ladd about the gospel of the kingdom. And uh, I read this book a few years ago and I had some things underlined in here uh, thinking about the kingdom of God. We all hear that term, the kingdom of God. Just think on a basic level, a kingdom has a king and a king rules over his kingdom. We have many earthly kingdoms. We have many rulers who rule over their people. But the biblical sense of a kingdom is different. And we're talking most importantly about the kingdom of God. And this is what Mr. Uh, George Ladd says. He says the word of God does say that the kingdom of God is a present reality. And he quotes Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness and peace are joy and joy rather are fruits of the spirit, which God bestows now upon those who yield their lives to the rule of the spirit. He says at the same time, the kingdom is an inheritance which God will bestow upon his people when Christ comes in glory. So we have the already kingdom and then we have the not yet kingdom. And he calls Matthew 25 and 34. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, come, O blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he asks, how can the kingdom of God be a present spiritual reality and yet be an inheritance bestowed upon God's people at the second coming of Christ? And he says another facet of kingdom truth reflects the fact that the kingdom is a realm unto which the followers of Jesus Christ have entered. Paul writes that God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's Colossians 1 and 13. This verse makes it very clear that the redeemed are already in the kingdom of Christ. So if you are a Christian this morning, you are already in Christ's kingdom. Our salvation is what makes us part of the kingdom of God. It may be, of course, be objected that we must distinguish the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. But that seems impossible for the kingdom of God is also the kingdom of Christ. So they are both one and the same. They're not two separate kingdoms because Christ and the father are one. Okay. But he says at the same time, the kingdom of God is a future realm, which we must enter when Christ returns. He says, Peter looks to the future day where we will be richly provided for you and entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of God is a present and a future 
reality. Again, all of us who are in Christ are part of the kingdom of God. And since we're part of the kingdom of God, then it is God who rules over us. We are the subjects of his kingdom. When you think about kingdoms of the world, they are imperfect kingdoms because the kingdoms of the world are ruled by sinners, by fallen people. Through all of human civilization, kingdoms have always, excuse me, existed. But all human kingdoms have fallen and will continue to fall because they are governed by fallen people. Some kings have taken their authority and abused it. Some rulers have. They've taken their authority and have not stewarded their kingship well over their servants but they become dictators or tyrants or totalitarian totalitarianism means a complete rule total rule you do what I say or else that's totalitarianism mandating their citizens to do certain things is totalitarianism and that is the way a sinner would rule as a king, as a ruler. And we've seen that all throughout our world. We see it even in our present day. Where we have wicked rulers ruling over nations. Throughout all of the world, we have wicked rulers. They are false kings ruling over false kingdoms. That's why we as believers are not to make the government into our idol or an idol. We're not to worship government. We're not to worship those who are in authority, whether it is Donald Trump or Barack Obama or Joseph R. Biden, no matter who isn't, whether it's Kay Ivey on the state level. We're not to lift them up as gods and worship them as idols. Because they are not worthy of our worship, number one. But number two, they are sinners. They're not good rulers. They rule by political expediency. Whatever seems to be convenient politically, that is how they rule. And they become idols. You have people who worship the government and want the government in everything. Want the government mandating and dictating everything to us. That is not the way the kingdom of God is. God's kingdom is much more glorious and much more greater. Why? Because God is a much more glorious and much more greater king to be worshipped. He is the God who is sovereign and rules and reigns over everything that he has created. He is a God who exists in and of himself and depends on nothing or no one outside of himself. But yet, he condescends to us and hears us. Hears our prayers. He intercedes for us. He helps us in time of need. That is the kind of king that we worship. And that king has a kingdom. And who is in the kingdom of God? All who are redeemed. All who are born again are part of God's kingdom.
And those of us who are in God's kingdom, we have a right to call him king. We have a right to submit to him and his authority as our ruler because our God is not some dictator or some type of authoritarian or totalitarian. He doesn't rule with an iron fist. There's no misery in God's kingdom. Misery comes from living outside of God's kingdom. Misery comes from worshiping under the kingdom of Satan, who is the God of this world, this, this, this unsaved world. Misery comes from Satan being your ruler because sin brings misery. Rebellion brings misery. Not worshiping God brings misery. But God as a great, compassionate, loving king, there's no misery with serving him in his kingdom. So now we get to our questions. What is the author's purpose in this chapter? It's to show that though God is unseen, he still saves his people from utter destruction to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And what do I want to accomplish? What does God want to accomplish rather through the text? That God is working his purposes out still. And we see that. That God does work with human behavior. We see that in working through Mordecai and through the king and through Esther. That God protects and saves his people. And that he causes his people to celebrate. One sentence summary, the unseen God ultimately gives his people victory over his enemies through divine providence. And what is one great value in this passage we see? We see divine reversal. That seemingly impossible circumstances that are devised by man can be reversed or overturned by the sovereign hand of God. There's no situation that God can't overturn for his glory. Amen. None. So the big idea is that as God's kingdom advances, the evil schemes of man can be reversed. And bring him glory and save the souls of man. As his kingdom advances. The evil schemes of man can be reversed. So let's look at. Uh, uh, Exposition here and observations of the text. First of all, we see that presumptuous and wicked power is thwarted. Verses 1 and 2. Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king. And so the king took off his signet ring, which was a symbol of power, by the way. And put it on Mordecai. And that is the power switching from Haman to Mordecai. And also in verse 7. We see that the king said to Esther. Indeed I have given Esther the house of Haman. And they have hanged him on the gallows. Because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. So we see here in this first observation that wicked power is thwarted. It is put out 
God sovereignly does that. The house of Haman was given to Esther as she sat Mordecai over it. And the reason why this happened was because in ancient Persia and a lot of ancient uh, Near Eastern cultures, the property of the uh, condemned criminals was forfeited to the crown. So when convicted criminals died or were killed, their property was handed over to the king. And the king disseminated that property however he wanted to. It was his discretion to do it. It was his total authority. So since Haman was dead and he had a nice size uh, estate, you can assume, the king decided to give it to Mordecai and Esther, rather, uh, gave it to Esther. That was his discretion to do so as the king. And the signet ring given to Mordecai, as it was given to Haman back in chapter 3, it was a sign of power, that signet ring was a sign of power. So it was a transfer of power again from the king to Mordecai. And it was a sign of Haman's power being thwarted. Of course, he was dead, so he had no more power, right? Because that ring was, it was, it was a symbolic way of taking the power away from Haman and giving it to Mordecai. Now, the thing about this in perspective is that signet ring could be given to anybody. It wasn't anything permanent about it, having that power. And we'll look at it later on in our uh, implications, our gospel implications. But it was merely symbolic, and it could be given to anyone or taken from someone on a whim. The king could have a temple tantrum and snatch the ring off Mordecai's finger and give it to someone else if he wanted to. That's how transient the nature of this, uh, this uh, procedure was that they did in uh, Persian culture. And then the next thing we see in observations is the desperate pleas for deliverance are answered. We see that beginning at verse 3 because Esther came to speak to the king. Because remember, although Haman was killed, the prospects of destruction still hung over the Jewish people because that edict was still out there. That decree to kill and to annihilate all the Jews was still there. So that prospect still hung over Esther. One thing was done, but yet there was another battle to fight. And so she still had to go before the king. And she says here in verse 5, If it pleases the king, and I found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. So it's, it's, it's still a sense of urgency there. Which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? So she has a desperate plea for deliverance. So though Haman was hanging again, the decree he had issued was still in effect. It had to be reversed in a way that would make it impossible to implement the first. So that was the task that needed to be done. It had to be reversed in a way that would make it impossible to implement the first. And in verse 9, we see that the edict was written two months after the first one. 
So verse 9, it tells us the third month was two months after the first month when the first edict was written. So this is two months later where the second edict was written. And this time it was written by Mordecai. The first time it was written by Haman. Again, you see the transient nature of how things happen in the kingdom. One man wrote an edict and another comes along a couple months later and does away with that one. And then someone could come along. You know, that, that, that's, that's how it happened. It's very transient. It wasn't permanent. It wasn't temporary. I'm sorry, it was temporary rather. Now this edict was issued faster than the first one because the faster horses uh, were used. At the end of verse 10, we see this. Riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. So there was a sense of urgency about this edict going out. It had to go out to over 120 provinces, all the way from India to Ethiopia. That's a pretty vast kingdom, north and south, east and west. And this edict had to get out before that day that it was supposed to go into effect. The horses from the king's stable were always faster. And this was a sense of urgency. We don't know how many horses the king had, but I'm sure he had a lot because this edict had to go out to a lot, a lot of different communities. And this didn't happen like in a one day's time, you know what I mean? Because the edict had to be written and it had to be published in all the different languages that were in that kingdom. A lot of languages that had to be translated into. They didn't go to Google Translate to find out, you know, what it said in, in, in their language. No, they had, they had men to have to interpret the language to Mordecai as he wrote the edict to interpret into that language. So I'm sure this was a very laborious task. It, it took a while, a lot of mental fortitude, a lot of angst because he had to get this uh, edict out in time. So once it was written, they put it on the horses. The men who rode the horses had to know where to go. They didn't have Google Maps to show them where they needed to go. And what cities to go to. We have to think about it in, in, in the context of this time in world history. About 500 B.C. or so. Over 2,500 years ago, transportation was much different than it is now. And we don't know how long it took those horses to reach the farthest parts of the kingdom. It could have taken a, a few days, a few weeks to get out but it still had to go out with a sense of urgency so they used the king's steed the best of the horses to do that and that indicated a sense of urgency and then another observation we see here is the greatest one that pervasive sorrow and fear turned to joy we see this at the end of this chapter Mordecai went out in the presence of the king with the great crown of gold it says the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city where the king's, wherever the king's command and decree came from, the Jews had joy and gladness. A feast and a holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews because the fear of the Jews fell upon them. So that was a time of great celebration of great celebration. God turned their mourning into dancing. 
The Jews in Susa reacted with great joy after seeing Mordecai adorned in royal apparel as opposed to seeing Haman. This was a sign to them that Haman's power had been thwarted when they saw one of their own walking around the king's apparel that must made them feel good. Hey, he's one of us. He's wearing the king's apparel. Their hopes were renewed in Susa and throughout Persia as the news of the edict spread. Once they found out, great Georgia swept over those places. And the best thing about this is that some of the Jews, Persians rather, became Jews because of the power of God working through Mordecai. Some of these pagans began to worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That is the most glorious part of this story. That God turned the hearts of these people toward worship of him after seeing how his people responded to this edict. So what are some principles here? We have four principles I talked about earlier under our questions. Number one, God is working his purposes out. We see that from the beginning of this book, from the banishing of Vashti, even unto now, God, though he is silent, was at work through his divine providence, working his purpose out. Working it out, and it is always, friends, to his glory. And this reminds me of what happened with uh, Joseph in the book of Genesis. When Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers. And I like this right here. Genesis 50 beginning at verse 15. It says when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said perhaps Joseph will hate us. And may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messages to Joseph saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus shall you say to Joseph, I, will, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. And this was the fulfillment of Joseph's dream that he had, by the way. But this is what Joseph said to him. Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about it as it is this day, to save many people alive. That was God's purpose for Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. That many people would be saved. That God would save many people alive. So when we think about the book of Esther here, God, although Vashti was banished, although the edict was sent out, although Mordecai was overlooked in exposing the plot that uh, was going to uh, kill the king. Although Esther was afraid to go before him. God still worked his purposes out for his glory. 
although Joseph's brothers meant evil to him because of the dream that he had that he ended up coming true. Joseph reminded them, no, that was a greater purpose. And I'm going to tell you this. God always has a sovereign purpose for us in his kingdom. We're not just walking around, just meandering, just doing whatever. God has a purpose. God created us for a purpose. And that purpose is to bring glory to him. To please God. To do what is pleasing in his sight. God will not forsake the works of his hands. Every single person in here, God has created us for a divine purpose. And that is to bring glory to him, not to ourselves. No matter what happens in our life, no matter what realm we're in. God is working his purposes out in your life. You may not be old enough to see it right now, young people, but he's doing it. I say it all the time. I think about the stupid stuff I did in high school and how I could have died in my sins. But God preserved my life and kept me from destruction for the purpose of saving me. That's what he did. He did that. I didn't know at the time that that's what was going on. But that's what he was doing, right? Look at all of, all of our lives. God is working his purposes out in our lives. Whether good or evil comes our way. He is still working those purposes out. He worked out his purpose with the Jews despite the evil that was plotted against them. His purposes did not stop because of the schemes of man. And they never do. Amen. Number two. God works with human behavior in response to him. God used, and I said this earlier, Mordecai, Esther, and King Xerxes to accomplish his redemptive purposes for the Jews. Unbeknownst to them, they, they were not aware. They were not aware they, they were being used by God. They didn't even mention God's name. But they were still being used by God. None of us know when we're being used by God. One thing God will never do, he will not use a believer for evil purposes. He will never do that. God will never use a believer for evil purposes. It will always be purposes of his good. He will never use us to do evil. It will always be to do good. Now, does God use evil people? Yes, he used Xerxes. Xerxes was a pagan. God did use him. He uses evil people, but he does not use evil. But whatever evil happens in our life, God can use that evil for his glory and for his purposes. And that's what we see here in this passage. He uses human behavior. Also, God protects and saves his people. Ultimately, God protected and saved the Jews in Persia from certain annihilation. He is faithful to his covenant people. It reminds me of what David said here in, in 2 Samuel 22. 
He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I would trust, the shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. God protects and saves his people. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He is our deliverer. He is our strength, as David said. He's our shield. He's our refuge. He's our savior. And because he is all those things, we call upon him. And he saves us. Esther called upon God unknowingly. And what did he do? He saved his people. And he does the same with us. We call upon the Lord. And he saves us. Last principle here. God causes his people to celebrate. God gives the good news of the edict and causes the Jews to celebrate. This is one thing to understand about the works of God. The works of God bring ultimate joy to his people. Psalm 126 and 3 says the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. This was a psalm that was written after the Jews had returned back to Jerusalem after the exile uh, during the time of the book of Ezra. They wrote the psalm when the temple was uh, rebuilt. The Lord has done great things for us and uh, we are glad. Why? Because God had brought them back out of captivity. It says in verse 6 of that same psalm, He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen. God, he, he turns that weeping. He turned the weeping of the Jews, of the edict. He turned it into rejoicing. He caused his people to celebrate. And God is still doing that today. He causes us to celebrate when we're weeping. He turns our sorrow into joy. Why? Because we trust in him. When we're sorrowful. Look to God. He brings us joy. God doesn't want us going around wallowing in the mire, as my old folks used to say. David said, he lifted me up also out of the horrible pit and out of the miry clay and set my feet upon the rock and established my goings. He lifts us up out of that, that pit, that, that horrible pit of despair. And he sets our feet upon his, his steady rock. He causes his people to celebrate. He causes all of us to celebrate. Aren't you glad we serve a God that doesn't just leave us there? In our little pitiful states, where we, 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 you know, we we live in the sinful flesh and we sin, 
and we feel sorrow over it and, and, and we repent, we turn to God. Sometimes we let that misery visit us and we court it, not realizing that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That right alone should cause us the joy. Lord, I'm not condemned. Yes, I've sinned against you, Father, forgive me, but I thank you that I am not condemned. God does not condemn his beloved. The believers are not under condemnation. And that causes us to celebrate too. Because though we sin, it has not removed God's love from us. Paul told us what shall separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing shall separate us as believers from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That should bring us joy. Implications here. God's kingdom will always rule in the hearts of his people as they submit to his authority. Always. We talked about the kingdom of God earlier. God's kingdom will always rule in the hearts of his people as they submit to his authority. We submit to God's authority. Guess what? His rule reigns in our hearts. His authority. God rules in the hearts of Esther and Mordecai and in the heart of the pagan king as they submit to divine providence. It is God who changes the hearts of men, especially rulers, to do his bidding. That's why we pray for our nation. That's why we pray for our uh, president. We, we pray for our governor, too. But particularly the trajectory of our nation. We pray for our president that God turns his heart to him because he's not a godly man. Anyone who believes that it's okay to murder babies in the womb all the way up to birth is a wicked man. That's wickedness. There's no two ways about it. God can turn their hearts toward him. He can do that. Proverbs 21 and 1 says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. God can change the hearts of the kings, the rulers of the nations. It's not that he can't. It's not that he's powerless to do that. God can do that. Now, will God strive with man? No. Will God give man over to his rebellion? Yes. Does God do that? Yes. When man seeks his own way, when man continues to seek the way of rebellion, God will turn them over to that. He will do that as a divine punishment uh, to them. But we still pray that God does that because the hearts of the rulers are in his hand. Number two, we talked about this earlier. God's kingdom is an already but not yet reality. God's kingdom is here within his church. His kingdom values, his kingdom rule, and his kingdom authority are present with all the saints. 
we have kingdom values. We Paul tells us that we are ambassadors of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. An ambassador represents a nation. He represents the interests of the nation that he is from. You know, the United States has ambassadors to different countries. The U.S. ambassadors to Europe or to France, or not Europe, to England, to France, to, to Egypt, or whatever country. We have ambassadors that, that go out and represent the interests of the United States across the world. So as ambassadors of, of Christ under his kingdom, we represent his kingdom values. As we go out into the world, we go out as ambassadors. We represent God's kingdom values, his kingdom rule, and his kingdom authority. We represent the fact that God has all authority, that to God alone belongs the glory. John Piper says this, is the, is the kingdom of God a future reality to be hoped for or a present reality to experience now? That's today's question. The answer is that it is partly present and partly future. Many of his blessings are here to be enjoyed now, but many of them are not yet here. Some of his power is available now, but not all of it. Some of its curse and misery of this old, I'm sorry, some of the curse and misery of this old age can be overcome now by the presence of the kingdom but some of it cannot be. The decisive battle against sin and Satan and sickness and death has been fought and won by the king in his death and resurrection. He's speaking of Christ. But the war is not over. Sin must be fought. We talked about that earlier. Sin must be fought. Satan must be resisted. Sickness must be prayed over and groaned under. And death must be endured until the second coming of the king and the consummation of his kingdom. So as long as we are in this flesh, we're part of an earthly kingdom, the kingdom of God. We must continue to fight against sin. We must continue to resist Satan. We must continue to pray over sickness. And death must still be endured until Christ comes back and consummates his kingdom. So it is a already but not yet reality. We are part of the kingdom of God if we're in Christ. But the future more perfect kingdom is yet to come. Number three, the reality of God's rule will bring joy and gladness to his people. That's another implication, gospel implication. Think about the first edict and the response. There was terror in the land. That's back in the third chapter. There was great terror. Fear fell among the Jews. Fear fell among Esther and Mordecai because they didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't know the end of this story. You know, we, we see it from the outside view. But in their moment, they did not know what was going to happen. So there was genuine fear. They were like, oh, well, you know, don't worry. Haman's going to be killed and, you know, Mordecai's going to write a new edict. No, they, they, they didn't know that. They had no idea. 
When that first edict was issued, there was genuine fear among the Jews, genuine fear with Esther, and genuine fear with Mordecai because they knew that when edicts were issued that they had to be followed through, that they could not be reversed. They were irrevocable. So they had genuine fear. And compare it with the second edict and its response. Think about after the first edict, Mordecai donned himself in what? Sackcloth and ashes. And now he's doing what? He's wearing the royal garments. He went from sackcloth to ashes to wearing royal garments. That's the reality of God's rule, and it brings joy and gladness to people. The Jews went from weeping and mourning to rejoicing and feasting. <clears throat> Psalm 30 and 12 says, It is a small thing for God to turn the seasons of sorrow of the pious into hours of joy. That is what God does for us, saints. Luke 1 and 52, God helps his people. And God causes them to rejoice over their enemies. Psalm 92 and 12 it is God who brings his people that joy. And lastly, the reality of God's rule will bring more people into his kingdom. The response to the non-Jews was one of reverential fear toward the unseen God of the Jewish people. Many of the pagan Persians converted to Judaism for fear of the Jews or for fear of being on the wrong side of history. They saw how their God, and I'm sure when those Jews, when they, the Jews throughout the empire, when they read their first edict, they, they wept and they mourned, but I'm sure they also prayed. And those Persians, those pagans heard them praying to this God that they didn't even know, that they didn't even worship, that they didn't even see, because their gods were like statues and idols. But the Jews were praying to the great unseen God who sees all. The great uncreated God who created everything. They're, they're praying to a real God. And I'm sure when these Persians saw the faithfulness of these Jews after they heard the news. That the Lord sovereignly worked and providentially worked in them. And through them. They were smart enough to become allies of the Jewish people and to worship their God. God turned their hearts over. It reminds me of a passage in 2 Chronicles 17 when Jehoshaphat was king. It says here in 2 Chronicles 17 and 10, and the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. Why? Because Jehoshaphat, although he was a sinner, he was a great king and he had a great rule. And these nations knew you don't play with Jehoshaphat because you will be defeated. You will be plowed over. And so as the great fame and, and news spread, 
even the Philistines, the sworn enemies of Israel. They brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver as tribute. And the Arabians brought him flocks, 7,000, I'm sorry, 7,700 rams and 7,700 male goats. Why? Because the reality of God's rule was with him. And these pagan nations bowed the knee to Jehoshaphat. Johann Peter Lang in his commentary on this verse said, Many of the people of the land became Jews and found out because the fear of the Jews and doubtless also of the mighty and powerful God of the Jews ruling over their destiny and not so much the fear of Mordecai and Esther had fallen upon them. These pagans perhaps saw God ruling over the destiny of the Jewish people and they said, I want some of that. I want what they have. How much more us as citizens of God's kingdom? And we don't have to put on a show for people, but when people see our faithfulness to God, our commitment to God, and the destiny of our life being ruled by God. And people saying, what can I do? What must I do to be saved? That is the reality. Whatever the case is a testimony to how the realization of God's kingdom worked through his people and how it can cause unbelievers to pause and take notice and even become converted. Even if they don't become converted, they can pause and take notice. Amen. Applications here. Respond to God's kingdom rule with obedience. God is the sovereign king. We are called to submit to his loving authority. God is king. He's a gracious king. He's the mighty king. He's the all-powerful king. We respond to his kingdom with obedience. Why? Because he's our ruler. He's our king. He's the one who sustains us. He's the one who looks after us and takes care of us. Two, we respond to God's kingdom rule with joy. We're not living under Stalin's Russia or Hitler's Germany. Or we're not living in China where they're under uh, the dictatorship of Xi Jinping. We're not living in uh, North Korea under Kim Jong-un. We're not living in those Middle Eastern countries where Sharia law is being enacted, where the women have to wear burqas all day in 110 degree weather. No, we're not living under the kingdom of a tyrant. We're living under the kingdom of God, and that should give us great joy that we have a great king, a merciful king who looks after us, who sees after us, who hears us, who loves us, who shepherds us, who chastises us, because he loves us. We are subjects in the greatest kingdom this earth will ever know.
and that is the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is the greatest kingdom. God's kingdom would never be defeated. This world has gone through hundreds of empires, including the one that we're reading about. The Persian Empire was eventually toppled by the Medeans and became the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the Medo-Persian Empire was toppled by the Greeks. And then the Greeks were toppled by the Romans. All these kingdoms rise and fall, rise and fall. But God's kingdom still reigns forever and it always will. There's going to be a time where the United States is going to be not. Prayer for not in our lifetime, but you have some people on the left who are trying to make sure that happens. But there's going to become a time. There's going to become a time where the United States is going to fall as a nation. That happens to all human institutions. But guess what? God's kingdom never falls, and that should give us joy. Three, we respond to God's kingdom rule with faith in him. To unbelievers, those who don't know the Lord, our loved ones, our friends, our family members, our co-workers, whether they realize it or not, they're living under God's kingdom. They're ruled by Satan, but this is God's world. And the devil is God's devil. They should respond to God's kingdom by professing faith in him. Or else they're going to be departing into the everlasting fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it leads us to the last application, respond to God's kingdom with evangelism. We share the gospel. We let people know, hey, this kingdom that you're living under is, is, is not doing it for you. This kingdom of worshiping of self Worshipping of your bodily autonomy. Worshipping all the idols of this culture and social media likes and shares and retweets and views and all those things. It's not saving. It's not doing any good. When you're up in the middle of the night scrolling through your phone. Looking for something to make you feel better. Looking for something to laugh at. It's just as fleeting as it can be. Looking for all these moments. Those things are so fleeting. That kingdom is failing you. The kingdom of this world is failing people. All this craziness we see in our culture is because these people are worshiping a false king. They're in a false kingdom. A kingdom that is failing them. The lies that the culture is telling them. These lies are failing people. They're worshiping the wrong king. They're worshiping the worst dictator, and that is sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil is manifested in sin. Well, manifests itself rather in sin. They're worshiping the world's ideologies, the world's philosophies. They're worshiping the desires of their sinful flesh. And they're listening to their under the rule of the devil. John, 1 John 5 tells us, We are of God believers, but the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. 
they're in a bad kingdom. They're worshiping a bad king, a terrible king who is seeking to destroy them, who is seeking to annihilate them. We show them the light of Christ. We show them that there's a better king with a better kingdom who will love, honor, and serve you, who knows truly what is best for you. Who's giving you how you should live your life to his glory. And that is the king that we ought to point people to. And that is the kingdom that God created us to live under. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you are a great and gracious king and that you have a great kingdom. Lord, there's no kingdom like yours. There's no king like you. Your word tells us that besides you, there's no other. The word says all the idols are fools and those who follow off them, at them, after them will be like them. Lord, it is foolish to worship under a different king and live in a different kingdom other than yours. Father, as we see in this passage today, may you turn the hearts of people to you. Give us joy, Lord, as believers, as we live in your kingdom. Give us joy. Help us to see the realities of your kingdom, Lord, and to respond with obedience, to respond with joy, to respond with faith, and to respond with evangelism. Lord, may you use this message mightily to be a blessing and encouragement to the saints, the faithful, and to bring sinners to repentance. In Christ's name I pray, amen.